Please turn with me in your Bibles or find in your bulletin insert a very famous uh, passage of Scripture found in the book of Lamentations, the third chapter. We'll use this as a unison uh, reading together. And let me offer on behalf of the congregation a word of thanks to Juan Carlos and Ruth and Esther Catherine for being here with us today. And we're very thankful that we've been led to support you over the years and we appreciate your ministry. And as I told the uh, early congregation, you know, in my pastoral prayer on Sundays, I normally include uh, some sort of prayer for protection for our missionaries. And as you could tell from uh, what Juan Carlos had to say, that's not merely a perfunctory prayer. That's something we need to always make sure we do as God's people to pray for protection of those. And uh, we thank God that He has given you protection all through your ministry and will continue to do so. Let's uh, read the Word of God together beginning at verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. It's been said that life is a sum of all your choices. And Scripture over and over again confirms the importance of our choices and sometimes in very practical ways like the book of Proverbs, for example. Whereas we read through uh, that book of wisdom, the author tells us over and over again what is the wise choice to make, what is the foolish choice choice to make. Uh, take twenty-eight nineteen for an example. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. We can see from that verse that it's, it's all about choices. Do I have the wisdom and the discipline to choose to work at my craft today, which for the farmer is to spend time in his fields, or am I going to waste my time with things that are worthless? What choice will I make? In Proverbs 1, in the latter part of that chapter, wisdom is personified as a prophetess where she denounces those who despise instruction. In other words, those who fail to choose the wise path. She also makes the point that distress and anguish will come upon them. And she tells us why. She says, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. And we know from that book that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't choose a life that fears God, that is to say that that reveres Him, that adores Him, that respects Him, that is devoted to Him, then trouble will come. 
And we see these kinds of choices all through Scripture. I'll just give you one more. In the last chapter of the book of Joshua, Joshua gives that choice to all of Israel when he says, Choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the the gods your fathers served or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We always have to make choices. And it's important for us to think about the significance of choices this morning because of what we find in Lamentations 3. But before we get to that specifically, we need to make sure we understand what this brief book is about. I mean, after all, when's the last time you read Lamentations? When's the last time you heard a sermon on Lamentations? I don't know that I've ever preached on it. The name, of course, gives us a clue. We have here a collection of laments so that the community of the southern kingdom as a whole can grieve, can grieve the destruction of Judah, the destruction of Jerusalem, the fall of the southern kingdom when all of the exiles are, are carted off to Babylon. While chapters 1 and 2 of this book are, are sort of like funeral dirges over the city of Jerusalem itself, a a song that the whole community would sing. Uh, Our particular chapter voices sadness and hope by one person who experienced this destruction and all that has taken place. And this book, so we begin to see, is much like the book of Job in that it's fundamentally oriented toward two issues, God's character in the face of human suffering and the human response to God in the context of suffering. And we can see both of those issues in this passage. Notice how memory plays such an important role in this lament as it does in any other. And we can see that very clearly in the first two verses of our text where we see that word, remember, not once but twice. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Our writer is is reflecting on his trials and sufferings in his own life and some of the same phrases that Job uses in his book. He's been through a lot. His nation has been through a lot. But here he remembers more the things that have have happened to him personally. And his soul is, is weighed down by such memories. that It's all heavy. It's like there's no light in the midst of all of this darkness. Now keep in mind what we said a couple of minutes ago, that it's important for us to think about the significance of choices because of what we see here in Lamentations 3. And the reason that's true is because whenever we remember the history of our lives, whenever we look back over our life story, we're faced with a choice. We have a choice of what we're actually going to remember. We didn't read the first part of this third chapter, but as we begin to read this third chapter, we think that this writer is going to remember all the bad things because that's what he talks about. 
but he understands this choice we have about what to remember. He could remember only the bad news if he wanted to, but we can see he knows better than that. He follows the teaching we find in Ecclesiastes 7 when that writer reminds us to say not why were the former days better than these for it's not out of wisdom that you ask such a question. In other words, when you take the time to remember, don't conclude that the good old days were only in the past. Don't ask, why doesn't anything good happen anymore? Instead, he chooses to remember good news even in the midst of the bad things that have taken place. Now, what is this good news he chooses to remember? We find it in verses 21 through 23. But this I call to mind, he says. Now remember, he's been remembering all of these things that have happened, all of this destruction, all of this terrible news that has come upon not only him individually, but his, his nation as well. The chosen nation of God himself. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is what the writer chooses to remember even in the midst of all of the destruction around him. You see, both suffering and redemption are a part of his history and his life, and he has both of those kinds of experiences from which to draw, just like you and me. But he chooses to emphasize good news here in the midst of the bad news. And with these well-known verses, he tells us so much about God, so many important things just here in a very tiny economy of words. You see, it's been his experience in life that regardless of what happens, good or bad, the steadfast love of the Lord is always present. God's love is always at work. And this Hebrew term that is translated here as steadfast love is the word hesed, which we've talked about before in sermons. And steadfast love is a good translation, but because that word is such a a pregnant term, uh, we could also add marvelous kindness or loving kindness. The, The choir sang a moment ago about God's loving kindness. That's what we're talking about here. The notion of loyalty is also in the meaning of that word. This steadfast love or or marvelous or loving kindness is, is the kind of act not required by law, but it springs from within the character of the one who is acting. That's what this writer wants us to see, that it's because of God's character that we have all of this good news of which he speaks. And because God is love, as 1 John 4 teaches, then His steadfast love can never end. That love is who He is. It's it's how He makes Himself known. He's shown that love in a supreme way through the gift of His own Son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth to, to live a perfect life and die a sacrificial death on the cross 
for your sins and for my sins and for the sins of the whole world. That's that's the supreme way Scripture tells us that God has made His love known, but it's also through the power of His Holy Spirit, His presence that works in our midst each day through His Holy Spirit. But His love is not all that's unending. His mercies also fall into that category. In fact, they never come to an end because they're new each and every day. Just like the widow's vial of oil never ran out. You remember that story? It was always there, regardless of how much she used. That's how God's mercies are. They never come to an end because they're renewed each and every day. Another term that might help us with the meaning of mercy there is is it's like compassion, like a parent has for a child. With His mercies, we see God in action, forgiving and delivering the oppressed. With His mercies, we see God, much like with His steadfast love, doing things simply because of who He is. As Psalm 103 teaches us, the Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's slow to anger because He's merciful. But that's not all He is. Our writer speaks here of God's faithfulness. We know we worship and and adore and believe in a faithful God, a, a faithfulness, a God whose faithfulness endures to all generations as Psalm 100 teaches When we speak of God's faithfulness, we're talking about the fact that we can trust Him. That He's reliable, that He's dependable. That what He says in Scripture and what He promises to do will come to effect and fruition. Not just some of the time, but all of the time. This word, like the others mentioned, is is heavily involved in the covenant. It's covenant terminology. We know this because as God reiterates His covenant with Moses and the children of Israel, these are the words with which God defines Himself. These are the words which God uses to describe Himself. We see that in Exodus 34, for example. You know, that's where uh, the first tables of stone of the law have been broken. And God tells Moses to cut two more tables of stone like the first and to go back up on Mount Sinai. And as Moses goes up there, we're told that the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now God says a lot of other things there in Exodus 34, but this is how he defines himself among his people. But even more than that definition, this is how our writer has experienced God's presence at work in his life. He's enjoyed God's steadfast love during all of his days. He's benefited from God's mercies and continues to live and thrive even in a time of destruction because God is faithful. All of this is good news. And as he remembers that good news, we can see that truth is confirmed. And did you pick up on the truth I'm talking about in our text? It's the last verse. The Lord is my portion, 
says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. You see, think about what he's seen, what he's experienced. He has seen God judge the southern kingdom, Judah, and rightly so. But God is the source not only of judgment, He's also the source of deliverance. And since He knows that God is strong to save, He has hope. A word which has the meaning behind it of waiting with expectancy. Juan Carlos and Ruth are waiting, and Esther Catherine waiting with expectancy for this little Sarah Presley to be born in December. And that's the idea behind this meaning of hope. All of his suffering and trials are tempered by the realization that God, even though he's brought this judgment on Judah, and perhaps many of the things this individual has experienced himself, that this is the same God who can overturn the shame of judgment. This is the same God who can overturn the shame of humiliation. And all that's fine and good. But I don't want this to simply be an educational exercise this morning. I don't want you leaving this place thinking, well, that was some nice things to learn about uh, the steadfast love of God and His mercies and the fact that He's faithful. I also want us to see what a beautiful gift Scripture is to us because places like this book of Lamentations or personal laments like we see in the Psalms or other places in Scripture, we need to know that these words give us a voice when we're going through times of trial and suffering. Through these laments all through the Bible, we too can see that we can complain to God like the psalmist does. We can ask God why like the psalmist does. We can be sad, we can be despondent, we can be angry and everything else in between because God has given us all of those emotions and more in His Word. And those scriptures can give us a voice when we're going through that time of suffering. And granted, most of the examples of people using these laments are found in the Old Testament, but not all of them. We have to remember what Jesus did when He faced His own painful death on the cross. Do you remember what He did? He went to one of the words, one of the old laments in the Psalms, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words are are not just a reflection of His own suffering, but are also a testimony to the power of Scripture to define whatever it is you and I are experiencing in life. In the midst of your own trials or sufferings, if, if you don't find yourself weeping over some of these same words in the Psalms, you ought to try it sometime. Because it will help. And we must understand that what we see in the suffering and trials of Jesus Himself is that even the perfect Son of God was not spared from suffering. Not in this fallen world. 
In fact, that's just one of the many ways he has identified with us in his incarnation. Taking on the limitations of flesh and living in a fallen world just like we do. But even as he cries out to God about the forsakenness of it all, notice that he does exactly what our writer does here. According to Luke 23, the last words out of Jesus' mouth were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I don't know about you, but the meaning of those words sound a lot like the meaning of our text today. The Lord is my portion. And I will hope in Him. God is the one to whom we always look. That's what this writer is doing. That's what Jesus' example teaches as well. Now granted, that good news is so much easier for us to see and experience on this side of the cross and resurrection on which we live than what the writer of this text knew. For as Peter puts it in his first letter, by God's great mercy we've been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and to an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. For you. Now the question is, do we believe that? Do you believe it? That you have a hope that is alive and well. A living hope. Because of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ and not just a hope but it's an an eternal inheritance one that never fades one that's imperishable and the reason this is such an important question is because as Tim Keller puts it the way you and I live right now is controlled by what we believe will happen in the future So what do you think will happen in the future? It's going to control how you live and the decisions you make and the priorities you have in your life. That's what gave this hope to this writer who even though he's in a time of exile, he can still hope in God. It's what allowed Jeremiah to say to the exiles, you know, you need to pray for the welfare of Babylon. And you need to marry and have children and build houses because 70 years from now, God's going to come and take our people back to the promised land. And so we need to thrive as a people so there'll be that many more who will go because God is faithful. And what he has said, he will accomplish. It gave hope to those exiles. It gave hope to Jesus on the cross. And it continues to give hope to you and me, regardless of what this world throws at us. For as Paul puts it in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Jesus Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, knowing all these things that the world throws at us, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. You see, it's this steadfast love of God in 
Jesus Christ. It's His mercies that are new every day through the power of His Holy Spirit. It's His faithfulness ever present. This is why our hope is in Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.